This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. This is the show. Is it really a show? Well, anyway, this is the show where we try to answer uh, your hardest maintenance questions. And once in a while, we actually uh, get it right. And when we don't get it right, we get email. <laughs> so uh, if, if you'd like to be on the show and have a question, uh, email us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And Ian will try to get you on the show. And after that great introduction, you all will want to follow and subscribe <laughs> to hear all the wrong answers we've come up with wherever oh, you get oh. your podcast. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Paul. We never give wrong answers. We just give guesses. Uh, if you'd like to get on our um, email list uh, for our uh, monthly newsletter and, and uh, other good stuff, uh, the easiest way to do that is to uh, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and a little email bot will ask you for your name and email address and uh, add you to our mailing list. Uh, again, that's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list. So I have a sort of a public public service announcement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole show is kind of that, isn't it? All right. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of uh, pre-buys and first inspections on 210s. And there's an AD, for those of you that are not, Cessna owners or 210 owners, there's an airworthiness directive out for a one-time inspection on the carry-through spar. And this is a giant 56-pound chunk of aluminum that the two wings attach to, and it's in the overhead of the cabin. And the AD also applies to Cardinal, so it's a little broader scope. But my public service announcement is not specifically to these guys. This is just the AD, AD that brought it to my attention. And there are a couple of steps to this AD. One step is you do a visual inspection. The second step is that you do an eddy current inspection of the bottom surface of the spar. And the third part is that the spar has to be completely painted with an epoxy primer or uh, a primer, we'll just say that, and then coated with a corrosion inhibiting compound on the outside, like Corban or AV8, something like that. And what I've seen is, the initial visual inspection gets done and the AD says, the log entry says AD complied with, or the AD was complied with and it had the visual and the eddy current, but not the coding reapplied or you know completed. So the owner doesn't know and just assumes that everything is done. And I get to the airplane and then I'm the bad guy that says, well, no, the coding has to be over the whole thing. And CIC is not the same thing as primer. It has to have both. But it all boils down to now the owner has to pull the headliner down and address this AD a second time. And the worst part of it is getting the headliner down and back up. Yep. And the plastic. But more, yeah, exactly. So it's very, it's very expensive. And in order to paint the whole thing, you have to take all kinds of stuff apart in the overhead. But even more concerning is that people aren't, really reading the AD uh, fully. Uh, Helen, as a former language arts teacher, they would call that reading for comprehension, you know, so you have to, <laughs> you, you have to read 
the entire AD, not just the first part and get that done. I'm reminded of an AD that came out in 1972 for Cessnas that said initially you had to take the entire flap, jack screw, and motor assembly out of the wing, clean it, reinstall it, and then re you didn't have to take it back out of the wing again, but you had to, uh, every 100 hours, clean and re-lubricate the jack screw. And it, I'm not going to remember the details because I don't reread it every other day. I should, though. And then within a certain period of time, you had to install a kit. And the kit was terminating action. I think you had two years to get the kit installed. And I still see airplanes coming in that every 100 hours, they're complying with this AD. But you can't comply with the AD because as of 1974, you were required to have terminating action. Hmm. So they're just not reading paragraph D. They read A, B, and C, but skip D. Anyway, it's a good idea to lubricate those jack screws. But don't say you're complying with the AD because it's terminated. So on that Cardinal AD, there's a local uh, Cardinal and a local mechanic, and they phoned me panicky saying, the mechanic saying that uh, the AD doesn't apply, he doesn't have to do the eddy current inspection. And How did he come to that conclusion? This guy, this guy is in my logbook from 40 years ago. He's been working on Cardinals for over 40 years, and he's an examiner for AMP candidates. And I just want to kindly say he should look at it more carefully. I don't think he listens to this podcast. <laughs> he's, a designated <laughs> he's a designated mechanic examiner. And he says yeah, that he and so one of the criteria oh, for passing an A&P candidate is you have to be able to read and execute an AD, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> That's so, an interesting yeah. thing. What it may be, because there's two ADs that apply to the, the SPARs. The first one was for 1978 and older 210s. And it did not include the Cardinal. He may not be aware of the one that came out this last March that is for the 1979 and newer 210 series, all 210s, T210s, P210s, and all of the Cardinals. And it's right in the applicability paragraph at the beginning of the AD. It lists 177s in there. I think that the Cardinal owner provided him with the AD, said we'd like to comply with the AD this year. So that's And he said it disturbing. didn't apply? Uh, he said you didn't need the eddy current inspection. And uh, he told them that they should take the headliner down because he didn't want to touch it. And they were asking me how to do that. And I said, well, get your screwdriver <laughs> and say your prayers because <laughs> it's not been down. And the plastic is original. It's, it's a mess. So, yeah, yeah that's good. That's the worst part about those head, all headliners, if they have to come down or if they have the zippers, I will often- I don't have a zipper. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Paul, so, so how, how are you being the bad guy on these pre-buys? You're, you're not taking down the headliner on the pre-buy, are you? No, no, no. I'm just looking. It, it's real easy to look up in there and see if mm. this has been done. Without pulling the headliner? Yeah, without pulling the headliner. Uh, you, there's a little inspection panel in the back. You can uh, that that you see the um the control. It's big wires enough to look through, but it's not big enough to paint through. In other words, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, and the zippers on the two tens, we have zippers in the headliners if they're original. And I hate those zippers because if you unzip it, it tears the thirty year old, forty year old headliner. Oh. So I I like to get the owner to open the zippers and to close the zippers. That way, if it tears, it's not on me. So, so the moral fault. of the story <laughs> is, if there's any chance that Paul's going to do a pre-buy on your 210 or Cardinal, then you better paint at least the part of the spar that he can see. That he can see. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> yeah. You know, some of these ADs uh, um, have applicability sections that are so obscure that that you need to hire a, an attorney to 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 parse them. I, I was very involved with the the AD on the uh, twin Cessna exhaust system, and uh, the AD on the twin Cessna exhaust system has an initial requirement and then a recurring requirement, and the recurring requirement requires a whole bunch of stuff every 12 years, whereas the initial requirement only uh, has to be done at the first engine overhaul after the exhaust system has accumulated a certain number of hours, 2,200 hours. Mm 
And so what the AD doesn't make clear and what we've had big fights about is if you replace your exhaust system with a new exhaust system, does that reset you back to initial or are you still subject to this 12-year recurrent? And my position is it reset you back to initial and all of these IAs in the field are saying, no, we got to do it every 12 years. And I actually reached out to the to the Wichita ACO, to the to the guy who was in charge of that AD, not the guy who wrote the AD because he, he retired. So somebody else is now in charge of the AD. And he agreed with me. You know, he said, no, if you put a new exhaust system in, that puts you resets you back to initial. But. You know, it's it's not obvious. You know, it's 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 one of these things that that different people read the AD and come to different conclusions. So it's complicated. And you were talking about multiple steps. The, the exhaust AD has like paragraphs A through G, all with different compliance times. It's really complicated. It's AD. a mess. Yeah. Our first question is from Justin, who's ready to get out the wire strippers. Go ahead, Justin. What's up? All right. So this is more of an expansion on a recent question several episodes back on owner-produced parts. And you guys were talking at length about a Cessna hinge in that episode. But I have questions that relate more specifically to electronic components. Electronic components frequently go end of life and create all sorts of headaches, and especially in the case of a certified airplane. You know, Garmin recently has pulled some of its GNS support. Although they have replacement options available, there are other Mm -hmm. systems, especially on Part 23 certified planes, where we're relying more and more on electronics. So what is the burden placed on an owner-produced part for things that are more in like this black magic realm of electronics? For an example, I own and fly a Columbia 400, which I know, Paul, you affectionately refer to us as those Columbia guys. Um, (laughs) But the propeller heat timer on there is one that's known to not be available. And even if I could get the print of the original, those internal components are not at all possible to obtain. Hmm. I uh, have since asking this question, done a little more research and found advisory circular AC20-62 Echo. And that talks specifically about components that can be replaced and some that can't. And the ones that can't are things that are programmable and contain software or any specific application type components. So what is an owner like me to do when you can't source any of these things and the world of, you know, electrons is black magic to everybody, including probably most of the FAA field approvers. <laughs> including the FAA guys. I, you, had, you just had to toss that in, didn't you? You know, that, that kind of talk gets us in trouble sometimes. So the, the Moritz prop heat timer is, is an issue. And, um, I know where there might be some, so I can, I might help you out with that. Smugglers. (laughs) But yeah, it's a potted device. So even if you take it apart, you're probably going to destroy it. You can't figure it out. So reverse engineering is very difficult. I don't have a good answer for that other than it is a- Used parts, right? It is. Um, Yeah. Used parts is about all you can get. And Which there's, there's not a whole lot supply. of Columbia's. Yeah there's, yeah, there's not a whole lot of Columbia's in the salvage yards. Yeah, there's, there's not, not a lot a of Columbia's, lot of period. From, from the manufacturers yeah. uh, of those parts anyway, so. Yeah. So, or pray well, for I, aftermarket. There's an alternate strategy, which is to, uh, to design your own timer and then try to convince Paul or some other IA <laughs> that it's a minor alteration. Which is something I probably could do. I am an electrical engineer for an aviation company by trade. So uh, it does fall in my skill set, but I'm just kind of curious if there's any extra. But, you know, the the chances of getting a field approval, I think, are it's it's pretty difficult nowadays. It's much harder to get field approvals nowadays than than it used to be because the uh, the FAA has issued guidance (laughs) on that 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 says that that really limits the the ability of a inspectors in the FISDO to issue field approvals without kicking it up to the aircraft certification office or something like that. So um, finding its way to being a minor alteration on a non-required equipment is kind of what I have to cross my fingers that it lives yeah. with. Well, that, 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 that would be the most frictionless approach if you can pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are we back to the frictionless world discussion? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we always try to minimize friction. That's right. Getting the FISDO involved usually increases friction. Yeah. And entropy. <laughs> you could just bypass the timer and just turn the, the heat on and off, just have a switch. But then you run the Is risk that a minor of leaving it on. Uh, no, that, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's not a Fiki airplane. So seems to me if you put it on a switch and, and that's a minor alteration, then putting it on a homebrew timer wouldn't be any greater alteration than that. You know, I think I you don't could think probably, that's a minor alteration. I don't think it's a minor alteration, but it, it, it might find the right guy to do a field approval. I mean, major and minor is in the eye of the beholder. If you, if if if, if you look at at you know part forty three appendix mm -hmm. A, definitions. you probably yeah. won't find anything about about propeller heat timers in the <laughs> yeah. list of things that the FAA is saying is it's it's a it's a close call. Yeah, that is going to be real frustrating because it, it's a very valid point that these are not, you know, 57 Chevys where everything is mechanical and you can fabricate everything out in the field. There's a lot of things that you just can't easily duplicate in the shop. We've got a, a PC board on a switch panel from a Cirrus that had a, uh, one of the lands fried due to a, a diode failure uh, on the battery number two uh, relay. Well, it's a simple thing in the avionics world. I would have just duplicated that. It's been no problem. But for an owner, that would have been a, a significant effort to do that. Had it fried any components, now you have to go find components. Uh, fortunately, you know, on the Cirrus's current production, but on a Columbia, you'd have a hard time duplicating that. Yeah, my particular Columbia also happens to be of the 12-volt variety, so oh, limits my oh, cool. Just a 300 then. No, it's a 400. It's a is 2005. It, oh, the, 2005. Okay. Very four early. serial numbers before they switched to 28 volts. Right. Yeah. 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 But yeah, you're right. You're right that the, the um, discrete components and even non-programmable ICs are, are considered to be standard parts and you have a lot of, a lot of uh, flexibility there. But if it's, if it's a programmable IC or a, uh, microprocessor or something then then it's not considered a standard part and if you replace it with something else you better not log it <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is one way to do it <laughs> yeah. i will never but, admit I mean, to that not a yeah. good way sometimes the only way <laughs> <laughs> hey i want it noted i was not the one that came up with that idea just <laughs> just for once it was not me yeah, Mike's going to get I, I had an FA inspector tell me that one time, and I never forgot it. He <laughs> oh, no. said, "He said, Mike, you really shouldn't do that. And if you do it, for God's sake, don't log it. And I thought, oh, I'm going to file. That sounds like good advice. I'm going to file that. How would away. anybody ever figure it out if you did that? I mean. <laughs> I probably oh. wouldn't. That's the. Yeah. I guess if it, there were we, a crash due to that, the NTSB would be digging and maybe they'd figure it out. But <laughs> They probably wouldn't get that far. I had a yeah. I had a friend back in the seventies. He was a mechanic, and he bought one of the kits for the uh, magnetic compass from Aircraft Spruce or somebody, and put the kit in, logged it in the log book and the whole bit. Didn't think anything of it. Probably done it a hundred times before. And a student uh, came in and was getting his check ride. So the FA is looking through the log books, sees the log book entry, and had a beginner inspector with him. The beginner inspector saw it. Decide, oh, this is a violation because he's broken into an instrument. So they sent the mechanic a letter, and the, the old guy uh, inspector made a visit to the mechanic and said, look, I couldn't stop it from happening. I'm sorry. And oh, no. we know that everybody does this, but for goodness sakes, don't put it don't in the logbook. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it occurs to me if if this if if this uh, if prop heat timer is potted, and, and if you design your own prop sink timer Nobody and potted know. it, and 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 if by some chance you peeled the the sticker off of the old one and pasted it on the new one, you know um, who's gonna uh, know? And again, 
not me making not this suggestion. Not saying that you should do this, understand, <laughs> but we're, we're just trying to explore the various options here because we feel your pain. I appreciate the insight. It's <laughs> yeah, uh, probably going to be a growing concern as more of these electromechanical systems make their way into newer yeah. planes. So Interesting that when Mike says something like that, it's considered insight. When Paul says something like that, Colleen it's violation. says it's something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, you're the avionics expert guy too. So and the and the Columbia guy. So you you didn't really have a solution. The mic's Paul, I've relied on say. your insight when my starter adapter went out. So oh, okay, good. Oh, yeah, <laughs> good, excellent, excellent. I, I try to stay out of areas where it's obvious that I might know something and get yeah. myself in trouble. Owner-produced produ- <laughs> starter adapter is probably not a good idea. This is but. probably not. <laughs> Owner-produced starter adapters. Yeah. All right. Well, that was that was that was great, Justin. Yeah, excellent yeah. question. We appreciate that call. Love, for sure. Love, love love the studio voice. Come back anytime, please. Yeah. <laughs> and I, Thanks, I love Justin. your T-shirt too. <laughs> I actually I have a slide like that when I teach my DC electrical class, and none of the students ever get it. You know, <laughs> it it says one atom's talking to another, and it says I lost an electron, and the other atom says, "Are you positive?" Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty basic, but my, and I just talked about atom. You know what's going on at the atomic level with protons, neutrons, and electrons, and they they never get it. And I'm just like, okay, I guess it's not funny if you're just not following. It is funny. It's funny. It's the <laughs> burden of being an electrical engineer. I kind of have to wear. Uh, yeah, it. yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> I like proudly it. do so. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, All Justin. Right, well, thank you. Thanks. Take care. Our next question is from Ben, who's a new aircraft owner with new aircraft owner questions. What's up, Ben? Hey, <laughs> thanks for having me on. Uh, I purchased hey. a 1978 Piper Warrior last year. Came with a fresh annual. I've noticed there have been a lot of, uh, a number of things deferred, not done over the last probably decade before I bought it. Oh. Uh, once completed, just makes the plane operate so much better. Uh, some of the things like new engineer filter, Vacuum system, air filter, seals around the windows, new spark plugs, greasing, lubing, the heater and defrost cables and brake servicing, kind of among others. Recently got it painted, and during the teardown and strip process, a mechanic on the field uh, performed an annual and stated a lot of the work that he did were just fundamental uh, little things that showed some deferment or neglect. And just wanted to figure out between uh, the experts that y'all are, what would y'all advise as I as the owner can do maybe over the next year leading into a little more comprehensive annual, or is there anything y'all would urgently do now? Well, the things that you've mentioned are all just routine things that come up at every annual. Filters. Well, actually, most most of what he mentioned are, are preventive maintenance items that he can right. do himself. Yeah, just yeah. Right, just basic stuff simple. that you can do. That so. you could do, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't call those deferred items. I think you're, you're going <laughs> to d- deal with fit- filters every year. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they could have been. You know, it depends on how bad the filter looked. But the nice thing is, you've got it. You said it's a warrior, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, warriors are great because incredibly simple. But the main things that you want to look for are corrosion issues at the wing attachments. The forward and the aft wing attachments, in particular the aft, because they have steel parts bolted to aluminum parts where the the wings attach to a carry-through. And there's a steel plate riveted to the aft wing spar and steel plates riveted to the carry-through spar. And there's a service bulletin for the older airplanes. That's a really good place to look. And the, the reason you want to look there is if you catch it really early, you can prevent all sorts of maintenance headaches. But I think other than that, on a warrior, the normal Cherokee checklist does pretty well. You can even use uh, uh, FAR 43 Appendix D as basic as that is, and that's a really low bar. But I think that catches pretty much everything that you would need to find on a, on a warrior. I would think, uh, in general, deferred maintenance is is bad when it's the kind of stuff that if you let it go too long, it's going to become very expensive. 
And and it could be anything from if something's loose or wearing and eggs out a hole or no, no, wallers, then holes go to wallers, out, wallers out, out the wallers hole. Out. It's going to need to be bushed and it's going to need machine work or replacing that part altogether. It's it's something that if you just put a bigger bolt in or or caught it before, you know, something got really worn, you could avoid the structural replacement that you'd need to do down the road. So those wing attach points, that that sounds like very specific to your model and, and really great advice and something that you can just clean the corrosion off and prevent it from getting out of control down the road. Uh, that, and that's good. Another one. thing on the Cherokees are the, the uh, stabilator pivots in the back. Uh, you want to check those for looseness and you can catch those early. It's not terribly expensive to deal with. But lubrication, you mentioned that. As an owner, there's a lubrication chart for the airplane in the service manual. Get out that chart and lubricate everything. I find some of the biggest problems are caused by just lack of routine attention with lubrication. And there's so the lubrication chart will tell you all the different greases to use. And it'll give, you don't have to use those exact greases, but you have, have to use, well, instead of greases, I'll say lubricants that meet the same specification. And there will be one that's called out. It's uh, Milspec 7870B, 7870B, just a light-duty oil. Don't use it. Um, <laughs> but go find some sort of good spray lube like LPS 1 or 2, or my favorite is TriFlow which is a Teflon lubricant. Yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, it is. Mooney uses it for all the external uh, rod ends on their flight controls because it sticks really well. It's a good penetrant, and it will certainly meet the spec of 7870B. So anywhere it calls for that, my motto is if it moves, squirt it with something and um, just keep it well lubricated. The piano hinge on your uh, trim tab on the back, just drizzle a little bit along there and on your aileron hinges, the same thing, especially if it's stored outdoors, you'll be surprised at what a huge difference that can make. Yeah, I, that's not expensive. It just takes time. <laughs> Lubricating anything is, is, uh, prevent, is categorized as preventive maintenance that an mm -hmm. owner can do. And the only thing you could do wrong is maybe use a lubricant that attracts dirt more than lubricates, and that could cause problems down the road. Like LPS3 is really sticky, um, gluey stuff. But this light stuff we're talking about, it, it's just trying to keep, you know, keep things moving. I mean, you can also lubricate control cables, right? That's another thing that gets sticky with time. Anything with a rod end or any place where you have two parts moving against each other is, is a great candidate for. Can, a rattle can of something. <laughs> yeah, and try try flow is a very good choice. That the, the all the, that's what all the motorcycle guys use on the cables and stuff like that is try flow. Yeah, bicycle people use it on chains. That's where I found it first. But uh, all sorts of things that can be lubricated that often don't pulleys, uh, cable pulleys. They all have sealed bearings, and they were sealed like ten years ago, but they weren't. They're not sealed anymore because they're old. So, and if you miss the best part, if you're like three feet away from the pulley and you're <laughs> spraying and you miss, it doesn't hurt anything. You you can yeah. lubricate the cables; they're good too. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, don't worry about having good aim. And the best part about lubrication is, as a new airplane owner, it forces you to look really closely at all the different places in your airplane, and you'll be you'll learn what. When you move this control, it's this cable that's moving and it goes over a pulley here. And, you know, you'll, you'll do a lot of snooping and you'll eventually look in all these places that you never would normally look. Yeah, you're t talking about air filters and, and uh, generally the manuals call for replacing various kinds of air filters on a timetable, you know, once a year, every 500 hours or whatever. You know, I wouldn't panic if if that, went over because the most of these times that are in the book are based on kind of the worst case airplane and you know to flying in dirty conditions and stuff like that so it, it, there's no big problem going over those those times but if the time on the filter is unknown or or 
or the last time it was done was, you know, in the previous century or something, <laughs> then then it's probably a good idea to change the filter just on general principles. Great airplane, though. That's a good start. Yeah, and like you said, it's a simple airplane, easy to work on. Yeah. What uh, What year model is it? It was 1978. 78. So my director of maintenance, Blake, bought a very similar airplane to get his private in. And uh, he's learned all the same stuff. And he's an AMP IA and been around the industry for a while. So when he rolled the airplane in, he did a lot of the same stuff that you're doing. He just started opening things up and exploring. And yes, he could do more maintenance than you can legally. But basically, as an owner, he did all the very same stuff that you're going to be doing. Just poking around, seeing what's there, spraying, you know, squirting stuff. Cleaning. <laughs> Keeping cleaning it well things. lubricated. Hey, Paul, yeah. I got a question for you. When Piper decided to, to rivet uh, steel plates onto an aluminum spar, <laughs> what, what, did they, what did they do to, you know, inhibit the dissimilar metals corrosion? They put some kind of special coatings on those things before they rivet them? And the steel plates were painted black, and I don't know that it was any kind of special paint. And the, the spars and all that, some were paint, some were primed, and some were not. But that's, it's, that's why it's the subject of a service bulletin, is that they have had a lot of corrosion issues. And so the bulletin came out, and, and I'm not sure that it applies to a 78 model. But anyway, you had to make an inspection panel uh, in, the, in the floor of the baggage area so you could get to this, take the plate out, clean it up, install new plate, prime, coat it with AV8. That was actually my first introduction to AV8. It sounds like a pretty big job. It, it can be if you find corrosion. If you don't find corrosion, it's not a big deal. And what, what kind of rivets do you use to rivet a steel plate to an aluminum spar? <laughs> just, they're just standard rivets, yeah. They're, they're aluminum rivets? Yeah, standard huh, rivets. I'll be darned. Standard AD rivets. And the bulletin is on the aft wing attach point, but you have very similar construction at the forward wing attach point. So I always recommend people check that as well. There you go. Yeah. Lubricant. Invest in a mirror and a flashlight and a rag. <laughs> and a borescope. And a borescope. And a borescope. Yeah. Yep. Borescope. Absolutely. I'll be looking got at those one places. last Christmas. Oh, oh no right. kidding. Another yeah, Christmas that present. Is, that is a great <laughs> Very cool. uh, aviator's Christmas present. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. Well, new I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you for having me on and uh, thank you for the wisdom. And I'll go uh, get some, some lubricant and start spraying it all over. Rock Some on. Okay, and and, and <laughs> ne ne next time you're on the show, make sure you're you're doing it from inside the airplane. That's right. <laughs> that sounds good, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Ben. Yeah, have fun. Our next question is from David, who had quite a stressful experience. Why don't you tell us the story, David? Thanks, Colleen. Well. While uh, flying an approach into a coastal Florida airport, I was several miles out over the water and at 1,600 feet, I lost engine power. So it was an abrupt loss of power, and I immediately began doing all the things I was trained to do. I, I pitched for glide. I made sure the fuel pump was on, which it was. I was trying to land. Uh, switched the fuel tanks. Uh, mixture, it was, you know, went to full, no change. Throttle went to full, back. You know, I could tell they were connected, but nothing was changing. So uh, when I talked to ATC, they were kind enough to let me know there was a beach up ahead that I could, I could <laughs> land on. So as if you didn't already know that I, I could oh see it, God. but uh, yeah, they didn't give me clearance, but uh, they did let me know. It was there. So, <laughs> uh, so while troubleshooting, I've got one of the older uh, UBG 16 engine monitors. I've also got a uh, JPI fuel flow meter. And I did have fuel flow. I had 12 GPH, and the, I noticed the EGTs were hot, uh, really hot, um, higher than I've ever seen them. Like the, the TIT was showing uh, like 1650, and, but the CHTs were all normal, like 350. And so while I'm looking at everything, trying to come up with a plan here, the engine didn't get power for uh, just for a second, but it lost it. And I knew I wasn't going to make the airport. So I was getting ready to make the turn at the beach. I was, I was about 500, 400, 500 feet as I turned to line up for the beach. And uh, while I was descending through 
400 feet preparing to land, I got a stall warning. I'd rather not discuss why that happened, but uh, what kind of airplane is this? <laughs> uh, it's a Piper oh, Lance. Airplane. Piper Lance. Lance. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I um, naturally that stall warning. Uh, I, I had been distracted, so I mm-hmm. pitched forward abruptly, and uh, that may have saved the plane because I got full power. And more since since I had throttle full forward, mixture full forward, I had I had more power than I've normally have at a sea level so uh i climbed straight up to 1200 feet and uh talked to atc i asked for a 180 and a short approach to the airport and everything everything was normal i mean i i said clear to land any runway right uh, yeah they they were great they they said i could have whatever i wanted and uh you know i was you know other than the strange feelings that come with an off airport on beach landing uh everything was fine Landed normally, taxied normal, uh, all the temps were normal, and when I got on the ground, uh, did a did a mag check, everything everything seemed fine. Uh-huh. So I was fortunate because I there was a great mechanic on the field that took and does, agreed to take on the issue and said they were you know it had to be everything had to be checked. So we started with the fuel tanks; they were pristine. The fuel servo sent that off; it was nearly perfect. And then the mags, well, in this plane, the dual mag. Uh, that was the issue. Oh, so uh, he reported cool. that uh, a all I heard was a spring, and I had sent a picture of this. A spring had failed in the mag and had chewed up some of the uh, internals of that. And there's the picture. That that little chunk on the rotor there is the the little piece of what I was told was a spring. Uh, it looks like a gear tooth. Yeah, it does. But I I should have. Uh, sent a different picture. It's just a little thin piece of metal. But uh, anyway, new mags in the uh, in the plane, and I've flown another 65 hours, and she's been great. My thought is that little chunk of spring got wedged in between the rotor and the case and delayed the timing back to whatever the starting timing is. I assume TDC on, on this mag. And Possibly the abrupt pitch down that uh, put me light in the seat may have allowed that little chunk to jump out of that mag and restore normal operation. But I can't really find anybody to tell me if that if that is sound uh, a sound assessment of what happened. And I thought maybe you guys would know. Paul, isn't it, the impulse coupling is sort of external to the mag? There's yeah. no way that metal could and that's move the from the impulse coupling into the yeah. mag. Does this one have an impulse coupling? It's a Piper. Uh, yeah, because there was a there's an AD that I have to because it's got uh, the rivets versus the the, the springs. Yeah, the there, there isn't there isn't any such thing as a shower of sparks dual mag, is there? I don't think so. No, there may not be. Yeah, I mean, I haven't worked on on these in a while. This reminds me of an article I wrote a while back. The, the title of which was "Is One and a Half Mags Enough." <laughs> I'm 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 convinced that that the DMAG should it's never awful. have been certified. It 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 may yeah. have some guy in the FA must have decided that it met the 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 letter of the regulation, but it sure doesn't meet the spirit of the regulation. That, yeah, it's, that it's you a should have terrible idea. Independent. Yeah, we we have recovered quite a few airplanes in the past and rebuilt a Mooney. Gosh, back when I was seventeen or eighteen, that. Uh, had a problem with the dual mag and a piece from one side of one mag decided to go to the other mag and destroyed both of them because there's not a divider really? between the two. Yeah. Now also, uh, uh, Lycoming's had a terrible problem with the clamps that secure the mag to the accessory case. They're on their like their third generation of clamp now, and and you know if the if if the clamp slips and the, and the mag rotates it, it takes You're both out of them luck. out of time yeah. not just one you know so it, it screws them both up but it, i don't it, see it, how this one how a piece of debris it, it wouldn't have taken it back to its basic timing i think it definitely would have slowed it down and screwed up the timing but it wouldn't it wouldn't take it to its start timing how yeah and looking back? at the at the yeah. graph, I mean, to, to me, it looks like the engine was still firing. It was just sending all the power out the exhaust uh, mm-hmm. rather than trying to don't go to zero. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Are Are we sure that the that the mag didn't didn't slip that, that the the clamps didn't weren't 
can come loose? Uh, the clamps were tight. They are the current generation uh, mm. clamps that have the, they're, they kind of have a, like a, I don't know, like a clover shape or something. They're a little, they have a little, yeah. a, a, a differentiating shape so you can tell. And they, yeah. it was, it was in the correct position. Uh, obviously after whatever happened where I had power restored, I'm, I had great power. Everything flew fine. So I was just trying to, trying to decipher what, what happened during that uh, unfortunate have, period. Have you flown it since? 65 hours worth. Uh, that must have taken some some guts to get back in when you weren't quite convinced that that was the problem, right? <laughs> I tell you, you know, I everybody asked me about it, and I I when I did my uh, private training, I had a flight instructor that was just hammered and hammered the emergency procedures, yeah, and made me one of the things he did was made me do emergency uh, procedures for uh, like I remember training. And taking the, the trainer down to just a couple hundred feet off the ground oh, over the beach. We had an island out where we trained, so it wasn't uh, like an occupied beach. And I've credited him with me not being too worked up during the process because mm-hmm. it wasn't a sight picture that I hadn't seen before. I was literally just preparing the, the next. It was only point. a sight picture you hoped never to see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just was, I was did, shutting out. Out of off. curiosity, did you declare an emergency? I'm sure ATC declared one for you. Correct. (laughs) Um, No, I did not say the words, but um, yeah, it was, I I made, uh, I probably did two things that, you know, maybe next time if I had more time, I would think it through. One is actually say Mayday. And the second, which in this case, I do believe the the stall um, or the stall warning, I'm convinced that is what saved me. I was at I was at sixteen hundred feet, so I just pitched for it. I thought I'd hold this while I worked the uh, worked the checklists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And having lost power, I think over. I mean, it wasn't really that long; just a couple of minutes. I had gradually lost the forward force on that yoke. And when I turned, I mean, I I it, I didn't stall in a turn, thankfully. But mm-hmm. when that stall warning sounded, that wow. was because I had not trimmed for glide and i was just thinking i would hold it so that was a a good takeaway but i'm afraid that had i not had that stall where i responded with a hard push over that plane may have been on the beach What's and that? certainly not uh not around anymore atc would have had to fill out a whole lot more paperwork i'm sure they're, <laughs> they're really glad that you made it to the airport well i'm st- i'm still struggling to figure out what spring it could have been yeah that's not really a spring yeah, so on when they did the teardown of the magneto, I uh, hope magnetos, the one and a half magnetos, did they find any damage to the magnetos themselves? No, no. The 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 plastic the plastic gears were not damaged. The gear, distributor gears. Yeah. I wow. believe they replaced those with new because it was sure. essentially uh, was. I but there wasn't there wasn't a, a distributor gear missing a tooth. Those things are made of nylon None or of something. Fractured like that. or anything. No, that that piece of metal on there. Again, I apologize. I thought I, I didn't think about taking a uh, a picture from the side, but it was just like a little thin. I wonder if it could be the springy the the the, the sheet metal spring on the points assembly that somehow came off. That's the only thing I can well, think of. I can't of imagine that, would... that doing that sort of damage, even if it got mm-hmm. wedged in there. I don't know. I guess it could. I don't know. A piece of metal floating around inside a mag could could. Do some do really strange things, yeah, because yeah, it's conductive. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure it did something mechanical. It might have done something electrical. That would make more sense. Another question everybody asked me is, well, how many hours were on that mag? It had 470 hours since its last yep. uh, iron. <laughs> of course. So yeah. <laughs> it's, so, I mean, well, the everybody says, oh, you, you should have done it. You should have had that mag uh, checked no. out at 500 hours. Well, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it would have been at this year's annual. Yeah, but I, w- I wonder if this is something that would have been caught even. Even, yeah, I don't know. Well, that, I love the plane, and I'm, I'm going to, uh, there, there are a few options now to address this concern with some uh, replacement mm-hmm. equipment. So I am. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you looking at the new, the new dual electronic ignition? Well, yeah, it, which the, the only, the only, w- the only one that, 
I think has an option for uh, is electro air. Yeah, is the electro air system, and and that that's got some issues as well. So there's no. I'm monitoring that discussion. So, uh, real important here. Did you keep the part? Yes, I have okay. the the rotor and the case, and it will become uh, artwork for the office. Absolutely. Okay, that's very important. <laughs> that's the most important thing. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for pushing our buttons. Yeah, you did everything right. So glad you're Good okay, job. David. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Take, take care. care. See you, David. See you. Okay, it's time for letters, which uh, most of us enjoy. I'm not sure, Paul, how you feel about them, but, um, you know, somebody questioning your expertise. <laughs> People question my expertise all the time. All the time. All the time. But, um, all right, so the first one deals with, let's see, I think it was the Mooney TAC, where they had uh, maybe two different times. So I think it was like a JPI versus a, a you know, oh, yeah. uh, the mechanical. And said, use the slowest time. Right. Yeah, that's or right. Or use the that's one exactly that was right. best. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So he said he has the exact scenario. Um, he's got a, uh, no, I'm sorry. The, the caller didn't have a Mooney. This guy's a Mooney. So this is from Ben. He said, my 1967 Mooney, the tack reads about a thousand RPM lower than the stock gauge a as thousand. a tiebreaker. Wow. Wow. Uh, no, sorry. That's maybe, me. Maybe a hundred. Yeah. A hundred. Yep. Okay. That sorry. Right. That makes a lot more sense. He downloaded the, um, an iPhone app called Strobe Tachometer. And it uses the phone camera at a selectable frame rate to freeze the prop blades corresponding to the selected RPM. So you aim the phone app through the windshield in flight, and then it values it to match it to the JPI across the entire range of in-flight settings. He said just a, a something for people to try because, and he finds yeah, it to be accurate. That's cool. That's yeah. great. Really yeah. cut down on the business, the prop tech business. <laughs> now, you can, now there's an app for that. I like, I like that. Yeah. You're going to have to Velcro your phone up on the dash, though. What so was the name of the app, study. Ian? Strobe Tachometer. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I got to download yeah. that. Why did we yeah. not already know this? <laughs> that is interesting, isn't it? I have yeah. to go download that. Yeah, definitely. Because we're Luddites. Um, okay, and this one's from Steve. Uh, this is about the Cessna 152 with oil pooling. You remember he had uh, he had bought this airplane. I think his wife was learning to fly in it. And so he said a question was addressed regarding the gentleman who had a 152 that was fouling the bottom pl- cylinders too. And oh, yeah. I didn't hear anyone recommend checking the mag for those plugs. Is it possible that a weak mag could cause those plugs from firing well enough to keep the normal oil consumption burned off? Obviously, the top plugs on one and three would not exhibit the same issue. When troubleshooting two problems occurring on a piece of equipment, I always look for what is common between the two. Just a thought from an old mechanic. Mm-hmm. That's from Steve. That's, that's <laughs> excellent troubleshooting skills. Yep. Yep. Look for what's common. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Is that something it's that... It's hard to tell you. Have I don't a, remember if you guys talk, mentioned that as a possible scenario or not, a possible solution or not. Call. Mag's firing weekly. I mean, you could have a bad coil, but they don't normally just go weak. They just don't. They what about if the timing changes? Yeah. Well, if the... If the internal timing. If the internal timing was off, then the, then the mag would not put out full voltage. Yeah. That's why we check it every 500 hours, preferably. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, okay. that's a good idea. Good. And this is my favorite. This might be my favorite letter yet. This is from Kelly. Colleen made the comment on a recent podcast that Mike's text number sounded like a prime number. It is not. Oh, <laughs> Remember, this was uh, Mike. Um, yes. Oh, three, oh. Three, 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 seven, seven, oh it's not a prime? Oh, yes. the 387, whatever not. it is? Really? Divisible by what? <laughs> well, so she said, Mike noted that it was odd, so that it had a chance to be prime. She said, here's a little trick to determine if an odd number is a prime number or not. Add the digits to the number. If the sum is divisible by a prime number, then it's not prime. In this case, the number is 33777, which apparently equals 27, which is divisible by the prime number three. Hence, it's not prime. Oh, man. That's wow. amazing. I, I wonder how you that. would prove that theorem. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, there's probably a is, name for that theorem somehow. That is got to be my I'll, favorite. That's have Ian's, to ask the bubbleheads at work. Conjecture is what it's called. Ian's conjecture. <laughs> I'm going to find out what the what theorem that is. I'm going to there's a name for it, I'm sure. That is so that's so cool. The funny things that we learn. So it's not prime. Oh well. That was Kelly? Kelly. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's Kelly's Thank kick. Kelly. Yeah. Kelly's I love it when We're, we're going to get a Kelly woman that is one smarter than all the old old farts. <laughs> yeah. I love Put it together. <laughs> Including me. Uh. Our next question is from Ray. He used an in-flight mag check to help diagnose a problem. Good job, Ray. Go ahead. Hi, guys. Uh, Ray Landis. So I've got a uh, Cessna T210N. So it's a 1979 210. I've had it since 1999. I flew it for 10 years with a TSIO 520. And then in 2012, I replaced that motor. I was uh, 300 hours past TBO with a uh, Larry Vitato's conversion. It's a turbo normalized IO 550. Uh, which is a magnificent motor, but it has, uh, I, I think, different magnetos than the um, the previous motor. So it's got pressurized mags. Mm -hmm. And over the subsequent uh, almost now 10 years I've had that motor, I've managed to go through uh, three magnetos. Uh, I went through a couple in uh, close succession in 2016, and the failure pattern was different on on those two failures but they were in close succession which might be a cautionary uh tale and then the last time i lost one was coming back from canada in august uh of course it's the last leg i'm coming crossing the border and i i'm at ten thousand feet with a 210 pilot sitting next to me we lean the engine to lean a peak and it's a little rough it just doesn't doesn't feel real normal and so I did an in-flight mag check and determined that one of the magnetos um, was operating, but clearly wasn't as smooth as the other. So my decision was to stay on both and go to Rich of Peak and to continue my flight trying to get back into the U.S. I didn't want to land somewhere in Canada with, with a bad magneto. And then ultimately, it got even rougher. Um, and I, again, did an in-flight mag check, rich of peak now. Um, and the, uh, the mag that was, that was uh, rough was very rough. So I just stayed on one magneto and uh, completed my flight into the U.S. Um, and landed at my home airport. So, you know, I've thought a lot, of, you know, having gone through three magnetos. Um, I guess, so three questions. One. When I lost the magneto, did I do the right thing? Um, was it an emergency? Should I have just you know landed in Canada? Uh, question two was my management of the failed magneto proper? Should I have stayed on the good mag or stayed on two mags or whatever? Uh, Rich and Peak, Lena Peak, um, and then finally, uh, what do I do now? I, I know what I've done is I've replaced. The, uh, the failed magneto with a, a conventional magneto. But I'm, I'm wondering if uh, without you guys quick picking winners and losers um, <laughs> with the electronic products that are out there in a turbocharged installation, do I just keep flying the old fashioned stuff or do I think about something electronic? Well, my first thought is I think your, your in-flight troubleshooting prowess was phenomenal. And your procedures were were fine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I, I wouldn't have landed in Canada either. I would have continued <laughs> the flight. So, so fly it, on the good it, Mac. You've obviously been right doing a do. lot of soul searching about that. But it sounds to me like you did exactly the right thing. And, and I hate pressurized magnetos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're just a bad idea. They uh, suffer greatly from contamination and, and moisture and corrosion and stuff. You know, normal mags, you, you need to open them up every 500 hours. Pressurized mags should really be opened up every 100 hours. They're just, they're just terrible. So if, if you could replace your, your mags with a dual Surefly installation, I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. One of the problems with this the 550 conversions, just like a Cirrus, to put mags on it like Mike has. Yeah, you on can't. His, you can't put big mags on. You it. can't you put the big mags room. on. That yeah. would be a phenomenal solution. And that's probably what you had on your 520. Yes. Yeah. More big than tractor likely. mags. But the yeah, big tractor mags. That's right. 
But the the Surefly, I think, is a is a very good option. I I have one Surefly, and I'm contemplating replacing and going to two Sureflies. The um, on your airplane, the downside they don't they don't need to be pressurized because they don't have a distributor. They do not. Well, yeah, they don't have a distributor in the same sense. There is some thought that they may need may have a problem at really high altitudes, but I've not seen any data to support that. Just why, why some that anecdotal be? people. Well, maybe arcing in the cap where the spring contacts are and that sort of thing. But it's just been a couple people making comments. So I, I haven't seen anything from Jason at Surefly or, or any actual data to support it. So, uh, but I, I think uh, something like that would be a great idea. They fit perfectly in there. You're not going to use the advanced timing feature. You will have to have a second battery for the second Surefly. That's where some of the expense will come in. But it's a little, it's, it's a, well, not so little, but it's a medium-sized uh, NICAD thing or, yeah. or nickel yeah, a metal thing. hydride uh, battery or something. But that A lot uh, less maintenance. No, maybe it's probably right? lithium-ion. I think anyway, it's lithium. It, 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 yeah, it mounts to the firewall. And, the one that we saw at Oshkosh. Yeah, uh, is that's probably the, the one, that's, the one that's, that's called out in the STC, I think. Yeah. So out of curiosity, Ray, when you switched to the one mag, did you pay much attention to the TITs? Not in turbine inlet temperature. I mean, when I lost my first magneto years ago in 2016, I was given a demo a flight to family members flying them around northern, <laughs> northern Michigan. Oh, that's and a great I, time to lose a mag. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and I'm, all the EGTs went up. Sure. Yeah. That's what they're supposed to do. Well, and I don't pay attention to EGTs. You know, I look at CHTs and I was busy and I landed on an island and I didn't <laughs> discover that I had a bad mag till I did my. Mag check runner, yeah. On and I, and I got a backfire, which mm-hmm. I think I've heard Mike talk about how that happens. And I left the plane and and didn't try to take off with one magneto. That's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> well, so the reason I asked the question is, if you lose a magneto on a non-turboed airplane, it just doesn't mean anything. You can fly around all day on one magneto. The engine relaxes. There's no detonation problems. All that. You're making less power, which is why you solve all these other problems. But on your turbocharged engine, you have to watch, uh, you have to watch the TITs uh, or TIT singular on your airplane. And EGTs are a good indicator as well because they're going to go up. If you're as aware of what's going on as you were, and you were incredibly aware of everything, the next time this happens, <laughs> so. You may want to do something to lower the TIT if that shoots up past 1,700 or so, if you're going to fly for a period of time. Of course, you did do something. You went full rich. Well, right. But, I mean, to notice the the TIT and and make sure that you're yeah. bringing that you down. You should have a TIT alarm set on the engine monitor. Well, we're, we're really glad that you did such a good job on your yeah. in-flight troubleshooting. Yeah. Kept your head up. And, I, and I, yeah, I do think it do. A dual Surefly is your is your best bet. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll update you, or even just one. You can just go to one. <laughs> I know my mechanic yeah. has got a straight two ten. He's a a, a a great guy. Seven, you know, eight, almost eighty Vietnam helicopter pilot flying a straight two ten with a Surefly mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, um, he's biased, and <laughs> and you and you can go you can go with one, and then you can add a second one later if you want. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. That's what Paul's going to do. Yep. That's what I'm, yeah, I've been, I've been flying mine for, I don't know, three or 400 hours so far. And when you uh, do that, take lots pleased. of pictures. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll do one probably for almost for sure. And I might do yeah. two. Who knows? I'll let you all know. Mm-hmm. I sure appreciate uh, your time. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, sure. Ray. Bye guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it for this episode. Hopefully, we got a few things right. We do love fan mail, and we read all your emails. If you have a tricky question, we'd love to help. Send it to us at podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see you. Bye.